Hi, I'm Kendall Gilding and welcome to My 30 Minutes with Sean Sennett. Sean is an Australian writer and musician, most famous for his time as owner and editor of Music Magazine and Australia's first street press, Time Off. After two decades, he made the bold decision to sell when he saw a group of friends all staring at their phones. And as you'll hear, he got out just in time. His writing career has taken him around the world, including on tour with Bruce Springsteen. The story of how they first met on the streets of Brisbane will give you goosebumps. Sean has interviewed everyone from Kylie Minogue to Delta Goodrum. And in his words, he's seen Taylor Swift and Katy Perry live more times than any other heterosexual man over 40. As a musician, he's written over 200 songs and collaborated with artists like multi-ARIA award winner Kate Sobrano. Here's My 30 Minutes with Sean Sennett. Well, Sean Sennett, welcome. It is so great to be sitting down with you. You've made a career out of interviewing people. How does it feel to be on the other side of the table? Well, I'm sitting here with my arms folded, so I think that says something. It's daunting. Yeah, you're you're uncomfortable. Yeah, I am uncomfortable. That's so funny. I know, it's weird, isn't it? I like asking the questions, but I've disciplined myself not to ask you any questions today. We'll see how you go. We've been friends for more than a decade now. You were my university tutor at QUT back in 2008. I think it was a writing class, maybe feature writing or sub-editing. Do you remember? It it wouldn't have been sub-editing. I'd be hopeless at that. I think what it was, um, I'd been asked by somebody to help them out and just do, I think it was one class for a semester and I think it was creative industries, writing and so forth. So I did that. And uh, you were in there and a lot of other you know, great people were there too. And uh, thankfully, it was just the one semester. I feel pretty special that I landed in that class because we've become really good yeah, friends. No, it's been so wonderful. It's, yeah, it's quite a divine opportunity that we met. I'll never forget, you always showed up to class with free concert tickets or double passes to the movies I'm not sure if you use them as bribery. Perhaps you were just happily dishing them out, but it definitely made me try harder in class. Oh, right. So did I sort of give you a movie ticket if you did well or, or, or appeared engaged maybe? I, I don't know, but you did. You always turned up and you're at the front of the class and you were kind of like, look, I've got these two tickets and it's a movie that had come out that day. Yeah. And it was this long-awaited film and you just dishing out free passes. I remember being like, this is so cool. Yeah, well, that'd go back to, you know, the time off days because we used to host movie previews. And back in those days, people would turn up and literally queue outside the front office door at 7am. There'd be 100 people deep for a free double pass to the movies. And by the end of that cycle, it'd be literally me in my pocket going, do you want a ticket? Because the whole thing changed. People weren't as keen to go to movie previews anymore. That's so funny. And it... In hindsight, a movie ticket doesn't cost that much, so it's amazing the appeal that something free has, even though its value isn't that great. Yeah, I guess um, yeah, this was all pre-Netflix and that sort of stuff, and you'd have been a poor university student. So yeah. I would have been keen for a free night out. I have always admired your career. You've achieved a lot and so much variety in your work. Um, you are one of the most stunning writers. Tell me how your oh. career began. Well, it was funny because I, I was lucky enough to get into university and do an arts degree and um, I wasn't a great student. But what I did love was at the Griffith University Library, they were literally up to your waist. They had all these imported copies of Rolling Stone. And so even though I was doing a pretty lacklustre job on my assignments, I was just reading these Rolling Stones like crazy 
and just absorbing all the history of popular culture from the 1950s through to that that time. And um, I just thought, yeah, this would be really interesting to try and write for a living. So when I finished university, I um, said, well, I'm going to give it a year just trying to be a writer. And so I'd ring people up and go, hey, you know, can I do this thing for you and blah, blah, blah. So I get a few commissions and so forth. So I'd do that. And um, I remember having a big portfolio of stuff that I'd put together just as a freelancer. And I went for a job interview at the Courier Mail. And I sat down there with an older guy and uh, he looked at the stuff and he said to me, hmm, we don't want any pontificating here. <laughs> and I went, okay. And then I went home and looked up the word pontificating. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't get the gig, thank goodness. And so I got to, you know, just, just write for a living. It's been very, very fortunate. been lovely. You went on to work for Time Off, which yeah. later on you bought. How did yeah. you end up there? Well, it was a funny thing because when I finished uni, um, when I was a kid, my dad used to drag me off to building sites around Brisbane to work with him every holidays and weekends. And I thought, well, I know what I don't want to do for a living. And then I got a job at Dreamworld, um, you know, on the bumper cars and stuff. Just This is on the university holidays. And Time Off had a little ad saying writers wanted – so I rang the guy up and said, oh, the cockroaches are going to be playing down at uh, Dreamworld because I was on the bumper cars. They were going to be playing that night. Do you want me to write something about the cockroaches for you? And he went, yeah, yeah, do that. So I wrote this thing about the cockroaches and then I uh, – the cockroaches later became the Wiggles, of course, or well, some of them did. And I remember going to the office in the valley, um, handing in the story. They printed it. I thought, wow, great, in print, wonderful. And then I went around there to get the check and the check um, – so I remember I'd written something for the Melbourne Age, a book review, and they gave me 100 bucks. And I thought, oh, wow, if I can write three of these a week, I will never have to get a job. And when I got the, the check from time off, I took it outside and I opened it and it was $15. <laughs> I thought, this isn't going to work out. But anyway, I was one of those people – I always feel that um, enthusiasm is worth like 25 IQ points. So I was very enthusiastic and I'd write about anything they wanted – and uh, what happened is the, the magazine, when the stock market crashed hit in 89, the people that owned it went into receivership. And I was just, I was paid like virtually no money to work there. And I think I was the first person in the history of receive, receivership business that got a pay rise because they went, we can't <laughs> lose this guy. If he leaves, it's over. So um, yeah, and then there's the opportunity to buy it out of receivership, which I did. And um, it was plain sailing for a long time. How do you buy a magazine out of receivership when you're getting paid $15 for an interview? Yeah, well, I was getting a little bit more, not a lot more than that later, but um, there was me and two other guys that bought it together and they sort of fell by the wayside. And um, it was one of those things where, you know, things are only worth what people are prepared to pay for it. And I think um, a lot of people are interested in buying the magazine but I'm assuming the receivers wanted more. They wanted people to buy the printing press and the building. And I just literally just wanted that little magazine and um, eventually got that. And um, it, as I said, it worked out. That was in 1990? Yeah, it was 1990. It's I, amazing. It's 30 years ago. I don't want to age you. That's the year I was born. <laughs> Thank you, Kendall. <laughs> why, why did you do that though? I mean, you so easily could have taken the skills you'd learnt and done something else. Essentially, you made the decision to go from being a writer yeah. to a business owner and yeah. there's a very big difference. Yeah, well, I, I think naivety is kind of in my favour because I think if somebody would say to me now, there's this business 
it's in receivership, it's making this amount of money, you have no skills in publishing, you know nothing about the printing industry, I'd go, well, that would be crazy. But when you're a kid, you kind of go, I love music, I love popular culture, let's just try and get great writing in there and then the business thing will work itself out, which it did. To explain to people a little bit about Time Off, it originated as a street press, but it was on the campus of the uni. Yeah, it was. So before my time, I think it had sort of started as a sister publication to Semper at UQ. And then the guys who were leaving university decided to take it into the real world. And then it was owned by a couple of people and a guy called Dennis Reinhardt bought it. And Dennis was a very entrepreneurial guy and had a lot of businesses. And as I said, from what I could gather, when the 89 stock market crash hit, that leveled a lot of people out and then the magazine became available. So I think um, I ended up working on a thousand issues, which is for a weekly deadline for a thousand issues is, you know, remarkable. And it was a street press. So it was free. Mm. All of your revenue and the money you're making would have had to have come from advertising in order to run this as a business. Yeah, that's right. And street press was a very big thing around Australia. Um, Time Off was one of the first ones, if not the first one to start in Australia. And, um, it was such a part of the culture where the Pancake Manor, for example, would get rid of a thousand copies a week. As in, <laughs> every not week. throw them out. As no, in- <laughs> no, no. As in, people would pick them up and take yeah. them home, and you know, places like Rocking Horse. And we went all the way from Byron Bay right up to Rockhampton, so we really covered a big area. And uh, as I said, you know, print magazines back then were a massive, massive thing, and it was, it was. Yeah, it was tough times too because we're an independent and uh, occasionally your competitors would be owned by big multinationals and they'd say, we're going to wipe you guys out, we're going to print more copies, we're going to do blah, blah, blah. But we had such a good reputation, I think, for quality and um, and it was kind of very well loved by the people in Brisbane. You said you did over a thousand um, editions, I suppose. Mm. You were the publisher and editor for 20 years. Yeah a phenomenal length of time and the magazine was a weekly street press, a very tight turnaround. What was the stress like during that time? Well, it was funny. It was a bit like riding a bicycle, that if you stop, you'll fall off. So you're always planning the one you've got coming out plus the one ahead of you. And and also too, you know, I wasn't doing everything myself. There was, you know, good salespeople and admin people and, you know, a lot of great writers too. And we would get a lot of writing from interstate in the magazine as well as local people. I, I sort of worked it out. I think we sort of gave – we would have given at least 200 people their start in, you know, contributing to the arts in Queensland in some fashion, getting them published. Also on top of that, you played a very fundamental role in helping artists. Mm. You would feature people who were really top-notch, and we'll get yeah. to that, but also undiscovered, unsigned bands. Yeah were hoping you would pick them up and write something about them. Yeah, well, I always thought the easiest thing about um, the magazine was that we were just reflecting the culture. So if things were happening, you had to have your radar up and recognise what it was and where it was. And we were very, very open to writing about bands that didn't have uh, CDs out at the time or record deals. And um, I think they then sort of respected that enough to – want to be part of time off as well and it was a big thing for them and even to this day I get people stop me at the local shop and go when you put our band on the cover of time off that was the greatest thing in the world and that really makes me happy to hear that and we kind of had a bit of a policy where we would have you know a big international star we try and have an unsigned local band on there we do a film 
we try and keep it pretty even and varied. And I'd kind of work out too that um, if there's four weeks in a month, we might do three populist covers and then we do one for us. That's kind of how it worked out. I know and it's very obvious that your love is of music. Yeah. You're very passionate about that. Mm. But when you're talking about this publication, the business side of it still must have weighed heavily on you and become a big part of your daily life. What's it like to run a business in that environment? Yeah, well, you know, the big thing is you kind of had a cutoff point with a magazine like that. You had to be X pages big to break even and then a few more pages to make some money because the setup costs were the same all the time. And um, really, you're kind of thinking, I really hope the sales team are firing. And they're the unsung heroes of, of magazines. You know, if those people don't get the ads in, you can't produce the content, you can't pay people. So every year after Christmas, we'd take a hammering because there'd be no ads in the magazine. So you'd literally turn up and lose, you know, five or $6,000 a week. And then you'd have wonderful weeks. And then the ironic thing was that um, when the internet hit, um, it was a great boom for the magazine because all these websites that were starting wanted to advertise their websites. So that was ironic, but, you know, a wonderful thing. But it's interesting, over a 20-year period, there's weeks where when I started the early days, I was doing 70 hours a week. And in fact, when I first got hired, they said to me, um, can you use a computer? I said, sure. But I've never turned a computer on before. Wow. So when I got there the first weekend I started, it was a um, public holiday, thank goodness, and I said to a guy in the next room, how do you turn this on? You know, there you go. I said, how do you work this thing? He said, just do that. And I literally sat there for an entire weekend and two-finger typed most of the magazine, which is ridiculous. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. And then I'd have times too, because over 20 years, there'd be some weeks I'd just zone out and think about other stuff. You couldn't concentrate for that long. And then other times I'd be really into it. Sometimes it was like directing traffic. In the early days, I really felt like I was really deep into the magazine. It was wonderful. Do you still type with two fingers or can you touch type? No, I just do one hand, yeah. You're joking. No, it's terrible. You type with one hand. Yeah, because the left hand would have the old cassette player with the tape on it for the interview. So you'd be turning that on and off and hitting pause and then the right hand would be typing Kendall Gilding said Still to this day, if you were going to type me an email, you would do it with one hand? Yeah, yeah, one hand. Maybe there might be a capital or a return button with the other hand, but – which is why I've got a dodgy shoulder, a bit of tendonitis. Old habits die hard. You talk about the number of pages in the publication and in your time at the helm, you turned it from what was 16 pages, which even in itself as a free street press still seems a significant amount of content. You turned it into something that was 72 pages. Yeah. What's that expansion like? Oh, you know, it just kind of felt uh, – it was very natural, organic kind of build. I remember once when we were 16, some guy said, one day this will be 24. I thought, this guy's dreaming. And uh, But, you know, as Brisbane grew and as more and more things happened, it was just like – because you had to go up in increments of four and there was always more than enough content to go in there. We always had like – it's crazy. I look at some old magazines now. There's like 10 or 12 feature stories. There's like 20 album reviews, four or five film reviews. And it's like, Wow. That really was a lot of content. I, I I reckon I'd be, if somebody said, do you want to work for a magazine now? They'd be like, is that a monthly? Because to do it weekly is just crazy. It is mental. I imagine the 90s and the noughties to be almost a very glamorous, good old days of media. Was it as incredible as we imagine? Well, it was great because people had money to spend. So for me, it, it was a... 
quite a bizarre thing, really, because time off was kind of like my ticket into getting into things. Because I was a kid that grew out in the suburbs, out at Daisy Hill, and um, even that's 20 minutes out of Brisbane, we used to call it coming into Brisbane. So it kind of felt like it was the sticks out there. And then suddenly uh, you have this magazine and you go into all these open nights of uh, plays and things. It was just, it was a, for me, it was a great education to get to go to theatre and get to go to art galleries and absorb all this stuff. It was wonderful. And people had budgets then too. So if you were doing an interview, somebody might fly to go to Sydney. I mean, the first time I ever got on a plane was to go and do an interview. So it was like, wow, amazing. Do you remember what year that was? Uh, it was probably around, probably around this. Yeah, it's probably around 1989, 90. Wow. First plane ride. (laughs) Tell me about the first time you interviewed Bruce Springsteen. This happened a bit by chance. Well, thinking of planes, Bruce told me once he didn't go on a plane until after Born to Run came out. He said he and the band would stand there in New Jersey and watch them fly overhead. So it's a different world. Now, Springsteen was completely by chance and, you know, I think where luck comes into things, I – he was playing in Brisbane in 1997. He was doing an acoustic tour for the Ghost of Tom Joad. He flew into Brisbane a few days earlier and uh, Melanie and I were out um, in the city walking around and I wanted to go see a movie. She was like, no, I want to go home. I was like, no, I really want to see a movie. I want to go home. And I remember being a bit miffed and um, maybe even a little bit cranky about it. And I said, oh, okay, we'll go home. So we started to head home. And I said, oh, I've seen that girl in front of us about three times walking around the city. Too bad it's not Bruce Springsteen. And Melanie went, oh, here he comes. He's walking up the street. You're kidding me. I said, oh, geez, he's coming up the street. And weirdly, I'd had a dream the night before that I'd met Bruce Springsteen and asked him a question. And so we're walking down the street. There's nobody around. It's in Alice Street. It's drizzling. He's walking up the street. And Melanie said to me, don't speak to him. (laughs) What? I don't know why she said that because Bruce was one of my heroes. I was one of those 39,000 kids that saw him play his first stadium ever show in Brisbane in 1985. And he got closer and I thought, I'll take the ambassadorial approach. So I said, Mr. Springsteen, welcome to Brisbane. Shook hands. And he had an umbrella and he was just about to keep moving. I could see he was just about to – and I thought of the question. And I said, oh, Bruce, before you go – can I ask you what it was like to play with Roy Orbison? Because there's a great video of Bruce playing with Roy Orbison. And Bruce stopped and he spoke to me for 30 minutes about Bruce Springsteen, Elvis Presley, Tony Joe White. And I knew all this 50s rock and roll stuff. We had a great conversation. And I didn't tell him I owned a magazine. I didn't even tell him I was a writer. We just had a conversation. And afterwards he said, oh, have you got tickets for my show? And I said, yeah, I've already got tickets. Thanks. And went off. I couldn't believe I'd met Bruce. It was wonderful. And then uh, we bumped into him again. He was lost. Wow. Couldn't find them all. Gave him directions. And then later that night he went back to the uh, hotel and he was talking to his manager, John Landau, and said, I met this couple in the street today. I really enjoyed talking to them. And somebody overheard that and said, I know that guy. He owns the local music magazine. And Bruce said, well, look, ask him if he's interested Does he want to meet me after the show and we'll do a proper interview for his magazine? So I I was like, wow, Bruce Springsteen in time off? So um, I went down there and uh, had this great chat with him. We we ran it as a double-page spread and 
people said they were sending it to their friends in Melbourne and Sydney. Like people couldn't believe that we had this this interview. And um, somebody told me later they were a fan. They were standing outside, and Ray Martin was there with his um, uh, sixty Minutes crew. And they said, "What are you hanging around for, Ray?" And he said, "Ah." Oh, Apparently he's in there talking to some guy who met in the street. <laughs> so it was wonderful. That story to yeah. me sums you up 100%. You have this unique ability to get people to open up to you, to make them feel comfortable. But I've always thought because we've kept in touch over the last mm. decade and we've been close friends and you've been a lot of a mentor to me, but every time we talk, I almost feel like my true self is able to come out. And I don't know what it is about you that makes that happen. And to be in a scenario where someone like Bruce Springsteen is in front of you and you ask the right question is the single greatest art <laughs> when you're a journalist or a creative really that you yeah. could get him to open up like that. Yeah, I used to sort of find, I think with most people I would interview, I generally try to ask them a question that wasn't about themselves. And I think people feel far, far more relaxed then and start chatting. Ironically, though, people are very narcissistic. And you'd think if you ask them a question about themselves, they'd go, oh, good. Thank you for asking. Here, I'll give you the answer. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but. Now, look, after 20 years, you did make the decision to sell your beloved magazine. Yeah. What led to that moment? You told me about this incredible experience that just became a really pivotal timestamp in why you thought it was time to go. Yeah, well, it's kind of, I guess I didn't think it was time to go, just the times were the time to go. They kind of dictated it to me. I um, had an offer to sell it to a, a Melbourne-based publisher and I thought, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I basically thought I would just keep doing the magazine for as long as I was working. And I sort of said, no, I'm not interested. And um, they sort of come back every six months and want to try and renegotiate and so forth. And then I'm not, uh, you know, I don't, I don't follow business that much and I don't, uh, you know, follow the markets and monetary trends. But I turned on the TV and I saw Peter Costello say, there's an economic tsunami coming. And there was something about the tone in his voice that resonated. And I went to band practice that night because I was in a band at the time. And um, I came outside of band practice and I, I'll never forget this. All the boys in the band were standing around a car. They weren't talking to each other. They were all looking at their phone. And I thought, time to sell the magazine. So I called the guy the next day and said, hey, if you want to do that deal. And um, so we ended up doing the deal. And, and I've got to say, you know, I did kind of uh, – you toy with was it the right thing to do, was it the wrong thing to do, but sadly print magazines were, were on the way out. It was their, their time. It had come to the end of their time. You made the decision to launch something online, which you did cheekily call Time Off Media. I know you would have signed sort of yeah. a deal that would have meant you didn't go into street press and you chose mm. to, to go digital. Yeah, how long was the gap between selling and launching something online? And why did you do that? I mean, time off itself didn't last for much beyond after when yeah. you sold. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny. Um, when I sold the business, I sold the business of the magazine, but I owned a company called Time Off Publications, which I still own. And uh, in my contract, I could have time off media and be online. Um, I just couldn't do a street paper for X amount of years, I think. And I, th I think I thought in the back of my head that when that's over, I'll just do another street paper. But the culture had shifted so much, it was impossible to do that. In fact, our biggest competitor went bankrupt within two or three years of, of that point. So I think it was – we had got involved in 
digital space very early with Time Off. I think we were the second magazine in Australia to go online. But back then it was very cost prohibitive. We were paying like $450 a week for people to write code to put our magazine up, which is which is crazy now when you think what people can do with a WordPress site. But I think doing the online magazine was – I felt I still wanted to stay involved in the culture. I still wanted to write. But I, in hindsight, it was a mistake. I should have just, as my dad said to me and a couple other wiser people, just take a year off, just go sit at home, read some books – have a think about what you want to do. Like I literally had three or four days in bar and then came back and went to the office, which was insane. It was stupid. It was a mistake. You think so? Because yeah, I wonder yeah, if yeah. how much of being a creature of habit plays into that or whether, I don't know, you struggle to to sit still. Well, I think I'm a massive creature of habit and, um, you know, yeah, I, I just wanted to keep doing it. But I think um, – yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was a good idea. Somebody said to me later, well, it was actually good you did. It's very good for people's mental health to have a job and something to go to. Why do you say it was a mistake? I think I didn't have enough petrol in the tank. It's like you're used to having a, a, a space with 13 energetic people in it and you're producing something people are interested in and, uh, you know, then doing something which, I don't know, it's, it's – I don't know, it wasn't as exciting – I think I'd moved on as a person too. I didn't want to go back to being the person I'd been in 1990. I wanted to be the person I was going to be in 2010, which might have meant doing something a little bit different. I mean, don't get me wrong, it wasn't a disaster. It's just that I think a break psychologically and physically not being in that space would have been good for a year or so. And perhaps to give you a real fresh start on a new chapter. Exactly, yeah. It's obvious you're not driven by money. Yeah. And as you said, the business side of things, that's not something you've ever really been that in tune with. You're a creative. There's no doubt about that. But talk to me about success from that point of view, because success is something we really struggle to define, Mm. but perhaps even more so when what you created with Time Off was hugely successful. But are you able to measure that personally? You know, it's funny how your idea of success changes. Like for me now, a successful person is somebody that can uh, pay their bills and be happy. When I was a kid, I just was – I wanted to build something I felt had some resonance. So um, I felt time off was a success and I felt – my dream was never having to wear a tie to work, never having to work for the man. That guy at the Courier-Mail telling me he didn't want anybody pontificating – was a great blessing. So I feel my idea of success is getting to do what you wanted to do. And I certainly got to do that. So I feel very, very grateful. You gave me possibly the single greatest piece of career advice. After I finished uni, I studied a Bachelor of Journalism at QUT and I couldn't find a job for a year and a half. And we were keeping up. Um, yeah. We'd have coffee together. Yeah. And I will never forget, we were on a road in New Farm, we were crossing the street after having coffee. It used to be a bookshop and a cafe. Oh, yeah, Bookneast, yeah. Bookneast. Um, we were crossing the road and you said to me, Kendall, everyone wants the dream job, but very few people are willing to put in the few years of hard work that are required mm. to make it happen. And that has stayed with me ever since. And it's so true because the uni degree wasn't the hard part of finding the job. Mm. It was persisting in the gap in between. And I've often wondered what that time was for. Was it a waste? But by persisting and staying with it and not just falling off and going to chase something else that would pay my bills, Mm. 
I did end up getting that breakthrough moment that has led me to where I am today in my career. And so I'm eternally grateful for that. Oh, wonderful. I think that's true. If you have a dream and a vision, you have to hang in there. Somebody once said to me, it was Richie York, the um, late journalist from uh, Brisbane, if it was easy, everybody would do it. So it's that hanging in there and being persistent. And uh, it, you can't underestimate energy and presence and bringing that into the work you do. And I think that inspires other people and they inspire you in turn. On top of all of this, you are a songwriter yeah. and quite prolific because you've written hundreds of songs. I imagine the difference between writing, say, a, a music review or an article and writing a song, yeah. there's a lot more vulnerability in music. Yeah, there is. I mean, doing it's, – it's kind of funny. I had to write something the other night, a story for an English magazine, and I was like, oh, geez, I've got to write this thing, you know, I want to get home and blah, blah, blah. But when I got in the zone, the flow, it's this wonderful meditative kind of space to be in. And writing a song is like that too. When you kind of get an idea and pursue it, and or, or even better still, if you work with really talented people and get their energy coming into the song as well, it's very different to – critical writing. It's a different kind of thing. It's far more dreamlike, but it's a wonderful thing to engage in. How do you pursue that as a hobby, perhaps also as mm. work mm. now? Well, it's really funny because when I started out at uni, even though I read all those rock and roll magazines, I just wanted to play rock and roll. I was just absorbing the writing. And then when I finished uni, well, I thought, well, I can write about it and get closer to it. And um, as I'm getting older, it's weird. I'm doing far more playing music than writing about it. I think I've almost hit that thing. I've written so much about it. I don't really want to write about music anymore. I don't want to review anybody's album. I don't want to review a show. I'm happy doing interviews, but I'd rather just play music with my friends, write songs and create something out of nothing that wasn't there before. As long as it can pay the bills and you don't have to wear a tie. No tie. I think not wearing the tie is more important than not paying the bills. <laughs> you are an eternal creator. On top of all of that, you've got a podcast, yeah. Time to Talk with Sean Sennett. I can't imagine a time where you are not creating something for people to enjoy. Yeah, well, like I said, I, I, I'm doing it for me too because, you know, I think uh, for my sense of well-being, I need to be doing stuff. And I, I think I inherit this from my dad. I mean, my dad was a bricklayer. And he was working all the time. And on the weekend, I'd like, I just want to sit here and watch the cricket on TV and do nothing. He'd be like, oh, we're building a rockery. I'd be like, I, no, please, no. He'd always be doing stuff. And it's funny, I turned up at an interview the other day I had to do for the State Library. And everybody was standing around just sort of chatting. And I got there and I could feel myself turning into my dad. I was like, okay, come on, let's go. Let's do it. Let's do the thing. So, yeah. I can't imagine you like that because you're a very calming presence and I know interviewing is really your happy place. So Yeah. But well, you want to get the show on the road. Yeah, you just want to get the, the interview in the in the can, don't you, and press on to the next one. Well, Sean, I'm so thankful, not just for your time today, but in general you have been there at so many pivotal moments of my career and I genuinely mean this from the bottom of my heart. I owe so much of who I am today and the work I do today to your mentorship. So thank you so much. Oh, Kendall, that's literally the nicest thing I've heard for a long time. Thank you. <laughs>